Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to the VJ Oncology Podcast. Today, we're going to be hearing from an international panel of leading experts in lung cancer and mesothelioma, and they're going to be discussing their key highlights from the recent IASLC World Conference on Lung Cancer, and what lines of research they think could be practice changing in the future. Daniel Tan from the National Cancer Centre in Singapore is going to be chairing today's session, and he's joined by Melissa Johnson from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Tennessee, and Dean Fennell from the University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust in the UK. The panel are going to be offering their thoughts on the exciting data presented on targeted therapies such as KRAS G12C inhibitors, antibody drug conjugates, and anti-TIG antibodies. They're also going to be discussing the use of biomarkers for evaluating the response to immunotherapy, the most promising neoadjuvant strategies, and the importance of lung cancer screening programs. There's plenty to cover, so I'll pass it over to the experts for today's lung cancer session with VJ Oncology. So I'll, I'll kickstart this discussion. So my name is uh, Daniel Tan. I am one of the co-chairs in the recent WCLC uh, 2020 um, that was actually held just in the end of January 2021. Uh, and um, with me today, I've got two of my uh, colleagues, um, Dr. Melissa Johnson and Dr. Dean Fennell, and I'll just let them introduce themselves in terms of where they uh, work. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa Johnson. I'm the director of the Lung Cancer Research Program at Sarah Cannon in Nashville, Tennessee. I, I'll just take this opportunity to congratulate Daniel on a fantastic program. Uh, the platform was awesome. And, and I just am struck by how we've made such progress from ASCO 2020, uh, where I played a role, uh, but we didn't have any live discussions to ESMO 2020, where we uh, there was more discussion, but we couldn't, the, the PDFs uh, were a little bit more difficult to get. And you have just figured out how to do it all. And so I congratulate you on a fantastic meeting. Thanks for that, Melissa. It's too kind. Um, and Dean? Thank you. I'm Dean Fennell. Um, I'm coming to you from the UK. I'm Professor of Thoracic Medical Oncology, Director of our Mesothelia Program. And uh, yeah, I can only echo uh, what Melissa said, actually, what a fantastic conference. And I think in terms of technology, we're obviously adapting as a world towards a virtual. Great. So I think, um, again, I, again, we're doing this, these WCLC highlights on behalf of, in, in this VJ Oncology program. And um, I think what we hope to do is really to start to, you know, pull out some of the um, abstracts, presentations that we felt would be, you know, of interest to the community. Uh, and I thought we first start off the discussion around some of the, you know, latest uh, targeted therapy agents um, that have uh, read out. Um, and I think starting with Sotaracep, uh, the KRAS G12C specific inhibitor. Um, so, you know, Melissa, how, what do you think of those, um, you know, that initial data with the you know, the mature phase two data set showing 34, 35% you know, response rates, um, you know, relatively modest PFS relative to some of the, what we've come to be familiar or acquainted with, with some of the other oncogenic drivers. Um, you know, what's your sense of that data coming through? Yeah, that, that was an, an important abstract as part of your presidential plenary, Daniel. And um, I have to say that um, I've warmed up to the response rate of 37%. Of course, at ESMO, the phase one results where the uh, response rate was in the low 30s. Um, but 
as we have continued to discuss this, we've seen also some data from Mirati with their direct KRS G12C inhibitor. Um, and in all of uh, these trials, evaluating this drug, not just in lung cancer, but in colon and other solid tumors that harbor KRS G12C, this is not the same as targeting EGFR or ALK. And so I, I have uh, decided that I'm satisfied with the response rate uh, near 40. Uh, we know that the data is in front of the Amgen 510 data is in front of the FDA, and we would anticipate a, an approval uh, in an area of uh, unmet need in lung cancer. And, um, and and moreover, the Codebreak 200 trial, in which patients are now being treated, being randomized to Amgen 510 versus docetaxel, um, we would anticipate that that also would be a positive study. And so, as we fast forward in 2021, I I believe that we'll begin to see the approval of these agents. Um, so this was an important important study. So so I agree, and particularly in the kind of a molecular subtype that is still, you know, very common around the world, uh, maybe less than Asia, but certainly, you know, the commonest in, um, you know, Caucasian, European descent. And, you know, here we have a total unmet need in terms of targeted approaches. So I think that's really going to be welcome. I, I suppose the challenge is, again, how, where, where do you see the future of this going into the first line setting? Um, and I think, that's going to be somewhat more tricky with that, you know, level of activity that we've seen so far, given the fact that, you know, our first line treatment options in this particular group of patients with this high preponderance of smokers, um, you know, smoking patients, smoking history, where we know checkpoint inhibitors and chemotherapy, you know, do provide fairly durable long-term outcomes. So, that's really going to be a, a, a you know, key challenge in terms of how we're going to improve upon some of the initial readouts of single agent uh, inhibitors. Um, what, True. What I, I think a very natural question is how does this move into the frontline space? Mm -hmm. I think uh, we do see that uh, KRAS G12C, of course, has uh, is a neoantigen that we know of. And so these patients... Um, do respond well to PD-1 inhibitors. We saw in the plenary data that irrespective of PD-L1, uh, uh, patients respond to KRES, the KRES G12C agent in addition. Um, I think a natural question is, could we uh, find a chemotherapy-free option with mm -hmm. immunotherapy and uh, a K direct KRAS G12C inhibitor um, in the frontline setting. And, and exactly who those patients are, I think some of the uh, commutation data uh, may, may lead us to the right patient population. The dilemma there or the challenge, the opportunity, I guess, is uh, whether the drugs, uh, a TKI directed against KRAS and uh, immunotherapy drug will uh, be tolerated together. Um, and we, we've seen examples in EGFR positive patients, ALK positive patients where that's not that's not true. They, they haven't been used uh, with good tolerance, but it, you make a good point that this is a different, um, this is a different biology. Yeah. One that is driven by smokers um, or, or we see more commonly in smokers. And so maybe we would be able to use these drugs together. Yeah. So I think we really anticipate, you know, the readout of some of the 
longer term or or the randomized data for those uh, for for you know these KRS G12C specific inhibitors as well as some of the combinations that are you know really now being ramped up in in early phase uh, clinical trials. Um, maybe we can switch gears to talk about uh, you know one of the emerging classes of ADCs that seems to now find a role in multiple cancer types. Um, you know with uh, HER2 ADCs as well as uh, TROPE2 um, as well as HER3. And we've seen a few of these being reported in relatively, um, you know, again, uh, smallish phase two studies. Um, you know, I, I think many viewers may not be 100% familiar with, um, you know, ADCs um, as they're still very much in development. Um, maybe, Melissa, could you kind of share some of that experience that you might have with these ADCs and you know, which one in particular, you know, you're excited about? Sure. I agree with you that uh, antibody drug conjugates that have been uh, an area of interest in many other cancers uh, uh, prior to 2021 um, really had a center stage uh, at your meeting. Um, in particular, um, so just to step back, antibody drug conjugates are um, monoclonal antibodies attached to a linker and a payload. Um, and the payload is ex is chemotherapy, and uh, and in particular, the uh, there were three antibody drug conjugates that I think of from your meeting: the uh, HER2 uh, TDXD transtuzumab directocan, the uh, trope two directed antibody drug conjugate. Uh, let me let me look at my notes for how to say its name. Datopotamab, um, and and uh, that's uh, DS ten sixty two, and then U three fourteen o two is a HER three antibody drug conjugate uh, being uh, developed in particular for patients with acquired resistance to osimertinib. I think it's just important to uh, to say that in the common platform that those three drugs share uh, made by Daiichi. Senkyo is the exotekin payload, but they all work a little differently depending on where they bind. So some of the interesting data uh, that was presented at your meeting was in the trastuzumab Durextacan uh, experience. Of course, we heard about that at, at ASCO, response rate of 62% for uh, patients with HER2 mutations. The new data at this meeting uh, was the co another cohort in that same trial evaluating patients with uh, HER2 overexpression, protein expression. Um, and interestingly, the response rate in that group was 25%, but irrespective of the amount of IHC, uh, HER2 uh, HER IHC, suggesting that at least in lung cancer, um, the mutation is more relevant, is the more relevant oncogene driver, um, as opposed to the protein overexpression, which we see, for example, being relevant for breast cancer. Um, I, I loved uh, that you included that. I, uh, uh, there was data at ASCO uh, with uh, TDXD in colorectal cancer patients and gastric cancer patients. And of course, this drug is already approved with the brand uh, brand name and her two for breast cancer patients uh, with levels of protein overexpression uh, being the relevant biomarker for those three groups. So this is an, I think, an example of a drug that has convincing activity across tumor types. And it's been a while since we've had one that uh, has such uh, broad activity. 
And, and I think in, in this instance, I think one of the major challenges is really going to be how we're going to refine some of the selection criteria from a biomarker point of view um, in, you know, really selecting. I think the initial experience with HER2 um, is speaking to that. And despite having such an established assay um, that is used, you know, fairly extensively in you know, breast cancer, for example, um, and notwithstanding that, we're not just going to have, you know, one, there's going to be multiple other um, targets um, that we'll need to, you know, potentially be able to develop a screening strategy to really refine patient selection in those patients. I, um, I think that's a really good point. And, and I think if I heard one um, constructive criticism of the data across the meeting, it, it, not just with the HER2 ADC, but also the TROPE2 and the HER3 antibody drug conjugate, it was that you know, show us that your biomarker defines the right patient population. And so I think that'll be the focus of additional therapy or additional uh, trials. And just before we leave off this topic on ADCs, I, you know, it's interesting as well that, um, you know, we do see, um, you know, dose-dependent toxicities emerging, but not necessarily dose-dependent activity efficacy, you know, necessarily. And I think it also kind of speaks to the, you know, that the, we don't fully understand the mediators of response in this. And, you know, while we have the payload being delivered, um, you know, through the tumors, there are a whole range of other re you know, reasons, including how the chemotherapy, the, the, the cytotoxic drug is taken up by the cancer cell um, that, that can actually influence uh, response. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity now to bring uh, Dean into the discussion because I think, you know, 2020 was a bumper year for, you know, progress in mesothelioma. Uh, and we've seen certainly some really exciting data coming out uh, from the initial presidential symposium in August, and then um, more recently as well, with Dean presenting his data on the confirmed trial. Um, so, Dean, maybe you could uh, share your thoughts on, you know, how what what how this has impacted the clinical practice um, thus far. Yeah, uh, you're right. It's been a transformative year um, with positive phase threes too, which is unique for us. Um, I think in this field, uh, having read out. Um, so just looking back, you know, the very first approval, of course, for chemotherapy was back in 2004, the FDA approval of pamitrexid uh, and, uh, and dysplatin. Um, and although we've had positive trials since that time, um, it really wasn't until the last uh, conference that we saw the Checkmate 743 data reading out with ipilimumab nivolumab versus chemotherapy as positive uh, phase three. So hazard ratio points for very respectable, um, significant uh, read on an early um, read of the data. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the controversy there, I guess, if there is one, is around the subgrouping. You know, mm -hmm. the vast majority of the signal seems to be in the non patients. And um, FDA, of course, have approved this now across the board. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll see what the health economics reads out like for different regions of the world. Um, and that's where we come then to, to the second line, because with uh, CONFIRM, uh, we've not seen any... Um, superiority really for any single drug in a phase three prior to the study. Uh, we read out with a hazard ratio of 0.72, again, an early read of the data uh, with about 230 events from 294 um, required events. Um, and this was a, uh, a study really in a population that had received at least one and majority actually two uh, courses of chemotherapy. So 
based on the survival, the improved um, secondary endpoint progression-free survival, we would say this certainly represents a now a validated option for patients. But it's how you reconcile these two um, immunotherapy uh, treatments in the first and second line. And one argument might be that um, patients certainly have a, um, a slightly better outcome within the first seven months with chemotherapy if they're, um, you know, uh, as, as seen in this Checkmate 743. And given the equivalence, um, certainly in the subgroup analysis, some may consider going forward in the future to try and uh, sequence with uh, second-line immunotherapy. I suspect the main use of immunotherapy is going to be in the population of patients who have already been treated. And we do know many patients can go on to have a re-challenge with immunotherapy, uh, with chemotherapy rather, over the course of a year or two years. Um, and uh, this will clearly be an option uh, for them. Um, I think in the future, the gravity is definitely towards frontline immunotherapy. It has to be. We've seen that in lung cancer. Um, and uh, with chemotherapy studies now currently ongoing, we may well see phase three data emerging uh, with chemotherapy combination, perhaps which show you know, very favorable data in the epithelioid subgroup, giving us, giving us further choices um, in, in that frontline setting. And, and maybe a question to you with regards to, you know, your thoughts around that difference in epithelioid and non-epithelioid histology uh, with regards to online. I mean, beyond that, do you, do you, do you, is there a biological basis for that difference that you see? So for a, yeah, for a long time, you know, certainly based on some of the preclinical and, and uh, translational pdl one um, expression studies, it was suggested that the uh, sarcomatoid might be a, a more sensitive subgroup. Um, for immunotherapy. I think three showed us very clearly actually that these two subtypes don't appear to be different for an Rather, the positive strong signal that we see in the non-epithelioid um, is a consequence of the poor um, benefit from chemotherapy. So the hazard ratio of about 0.4 was due to the low, um, you know, uh, Sort of short PFS associated with the um, with the chemotherapy, so the histology is something that we've always known, which is that it's prognostic, negatively prognostic, um, relatively for the um, uh, for the non-epithelioid. Um, when we look at the placebo control in the relapse setting, uh, we did see no difference essentially um, in 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 survival for well, we saw a survival advantage for the epithelioid in relapse. Um, that sort of difference was was narrowed significantly in the non-epithelioid, but we have to remember that it was an underpowered overall survival uh, in this presentation, and that uh, we're waiting for more events, I think, in the non-epithelioid to see exactly how they do. But just to answer your question and summarize, I think that immunotherapy works equally well in these two subs, but chemotherapy doesn't. Interesting. And, um, you know, I think really congratulate you for, you know, running that uh, investigated, initiated, you know, studied, coordinated out of an academic unit. Um, where do you see kind of future combinations? And, you know, I guess that question as well to Melissa, you know, what are the, you know, where's, where's the, what, what are you excited about in terms of uh, future uh, treatment options for mesothelioma? If I may um, just briefly say, I mean, I think um, with our understanding, growing understanding of the uh, genomic landscape, um, Nick Waddell actually uh, from Australia gave a, a nice overview of the genomic landscape in this conference. 
Um, we now have uh, very frequently occurring tumor suppressor targets, which may be actionable. Uh, we presented some data, we actually published some data, which we presented at ASCO last year um, on PARP inhibition in BAT1 uh, mutant patients. Study met its primary endpoint as an investigator initiated phase two. Um, we've got data we'll be presenting on targeting CDKN2A. And um, I suspect the opportunities to target things like the HIPAA pathway um, as we develop new approaches. So, yeah, I, I know we're 10 years behind lung, but um, it'd be nice to sort of see um, um, synthetic lethal approaches which, which demonstrate uh, you know, specific for the relapse setting because the population is so heterogeneous. And Melissa, I mean, I guess you have something to say to that with the advances in uh, specifically cell therapy or other kind of ADCs. I do think um, I, I agree with Dean that uh, it's not always good to be first. Sometimes it's good to be last. Um, and so I think we're we're benefiting. Uh, uh, the field of mesothelioma is benefiting from some of the mistakes that uh, and assumptions we made in non-small cell lung cancer five or seven years ago. Um, I, I'm excited about CAR T cell therapy in uh, mesothelioma patients. Um, I, there was multiple discussions uh, that featured Prasad Adusamili's work uh, with a mesothelin-directed CAR at Memorial. Um, there, there's also a French group that has uh, had similar successes with intrapleural administration. Uh, I think that's a really important aspect of both of, of the works and maybe uh, why CAR T cell therapy will gain traction in, um, in mesothelioma relative to non-small cell or small cell, for example, that is more systemic. One of the challenges of CAR therapy is getting the CAR T cell to the tumor. Um, and so that's easier if you're putting it right up next to the cancer within the pleural space. Uh, we we have a, a mesothelin directed car um, uh, made by TCR squared at, at Sarah Cannon, and we've been um, very impressed with the ability of patients and the interest in patients uh, to travel. It almost reminds me of a. EGFR or an ALK uh, uh, patient population, they are younger, they're informed about their cancer, and they're looking for the very best therapies. Um, we, we have a, a lot of ways to take care of patients um, who are coming from out of town, and so that uh, is a nice synergy uh, for them. So I'm excited to, to see that field uh, continue to develop. Fantastic. And, and to your point, I guess, you know, every... I think despite all these interventions, there are still limitations, you know, in terms of how we're going to better understand the microenvironment, how we're going to understand the immune contexture in terms of, um, you know, allowing the appropriate cells to traffic in. Um, and this notion of this immune, you know, different immune set points of different tumors is nicely exemplified by, you know, the emerging data with combination checkpoint inhibitors in that PDL1 more than 50% cohort, for which again uh, we've seen in the last ASCO and then this time again updated data uh, for TIGIT antibody in the uh, PDL1 more than 50% group, um, and of course you know in the presidential symposium we saw the present first presentation of the CTLA4 in combination with PD1 
um, versus pembrolizumab showing no significant benefit, but you know increased toxicities in that population. Again, speaking to Dean's point, you know the very good control arm. I think the big difference here you have a, a, a control arm that is you know appropriate and that performs very well. And you know certainly it's interesting that we're beginning to see some of the combinations working in very specific PDL1 you know turtles within lung cancer. Um, you know, Melissa, what are your thoughts around, you know, that data? Again, you've been involved with the TIGIT antibody development as well. I, I agree. I'm, I am uh, excited that we may be taking another step in how we understand these therapies, because we know that patients with different levels of pdl one clinically look and respond very differently to chemotherapy with IO, IO alone. Um, I think uh, the Pembro-IPI versus Pembro data that showed no difference uh, was surprising to me. Um, and I think uh, the discussant made a really good point uh, that uh, it was a pdl one high patient population. And perhaps that's not the patient population where the anti-CTLA for component is relevant or necessary. Uh, so I, I thought that was a maybe a good take-home point uh, from a negative trial. Um, the TIGIC data is interesting and uh, I, uh, a little biased, but I, I'm, I will say that I'm a little skeptical too. We'll see. Um, uh, the, the cityscape data showed uh, that for patients, uh, the, the addition of terigolumab, an anti-tigit antibody to atezolizumab um, in a newly diagnosed advanced patient population, there was a small improvement in response rate in PFS in the intent to treat patient population, but that increased in a pdl one high group of patients. The biomarker analysis that was reported at this meeting suggested that actually, whether you use the DACO22C3 assay to define your pdl one cut point, or if you use Ventana's um, SP263, um, the, the same was true. The pdl one high patient population uh, had improved responses and PFS. Um, and so now we await the skyscraper uh, phase three uh, in which patients are all pdl one high. Uh, we're participating in this trial. Uh, I noted this week uh, that the trial is now beginning to look at DECO, as well as Ventana to, uh, to measure PDL one um, And so we'll see what implications that, that has. Uh, but it, it would be great to have more doublet options without chemo for our patients. For sure. And, and Dean, you know, I guess the PDL one has caused some angst in the, in the thoracic and lung cancer world. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be that predictive in mesothelioma subgroup analysis, um, you know, what, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, one message that has come from earlier studies in retrospective cohorts was that PDL one was negatively prognostic. And uh, that was sort of borne out to a degree in Checkmate 743, where patients just seem to do worse on both arms if they were PDL one positive. Um, I think the main challenge definitely has been around the type of clone that's been used uh, in studies. Um, cell signaling has been used, for example, in the uh, PROMISE study, very high expression rate, somewhere around 60%, I think it was. Um, you know, we've seen consistent results with the DACO22C3 
Um, I think Boston ran a large retrospective cohort study. Um, we've run other studies, actually some clinical trials in which we've used 22C3, and we're consistently seeing somewhere in the order of about 20 25% expression. But that's measuring almost identically to how we measure in lung cancer using the, the tumor proportion score and, and the, you know, the, the various levels. Um, one of the things I should say is that we did only present the uh, greater than 1% versus less than 1% cutoff. Um, we will have data actually with mature su survival and confirm um, looking at the greater than 50% to see if there is anything there, either prognostic or predictive. But you're absolutely right. We saw nothing to suggest um, any, uh, any predictable prognostic effect in a placebo control study. And, and is there a significant human professional burden in mesothelioma? Uh, so, um, well, actually, again, uh, Nick uh, Waddell covered a little bit of this, actually. The, the mutation burden is very low in mesothelioma. UTGA, the upper limit um, for, I think, one patient was eight uh, mutations per megabase, and the average is around about two. So um, that 10, you know, uh, mutation of a megabase that we see in lung, we're way, way away from that. I think um, uh, Aaron Mansfield um, from the Mayo has published on this, and we know the genomic landscape because it's so different in mesothelioma. We see a lot of copy number losses, possibly chromothripsis or some, you know, unusual um, transformative event during the evolution of the cancer that leads to a lot of uh, genome rearrangements. And it's probably through these rearrangements that we're seeing um, new antigens form. And that's not being picked up using conventional um, sort of sequencing approaches. Um, and so we don't know yet what's driving immune response in mesothelioma. We, we have some, as you know, we see some fantastic responders to monotherapy. Um, and, uh, you know, one possibility is that there are factors that are regulating the uh, sort of recruitment um, and uh, sort of activation status of, of cytotoxic T cells. And so that's something we want to explore, obviously, within CONFIRM. Okay, so that, that's fascinating. Almost um, like oncogene-driven cancers, but maybe slightly better than oncogene-driven lung cancers in terms yes. of response to immunotherapy. Very much so. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's uh, kind of move to where we think we might be able to learn a lot of the, from these predictors in terms of biomarkers for immune therapy response and moving into that early stage perioperative setting. Um, I think we saw some nice, um, you know, one of the largest trials, uh, new adjuvant trials, single arm, um, 181 patients um, with uh, tezolizumab in the LCMC3 study. And uh, that showed a PAPCR rate of 7%, um, you know, NPR rate of 21%, uh, with some increase when you enrich for the, you know, pdl one more than 50%. Um, you know, uh, Melissa, what, what's your thought around, you know, this whole um, move towards neoadjuvant um, treatments? And do you think we're ready to, you know, where, where do you think this field is going to head to in terms of, um, you know, how, uh, next steps towards standard of care, I suppose, or, or the, you know, the willingness for physicians to start even thinking about this um, as, as, as standard of care? struck as I listened to the LCMC3 presentation that this data certainly adds um, support and adds momentum to the uh, to the excitement of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Um, it, it's been a, a little bit of a protracted story, right? Because uh, it's hard to 
it's a little bit harder to find and treat these patients uh, before they have their surgery. Um, but I think it absolutely supports uh, the use of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. I, I was sharing with you all before uh, we started taping that uh, my surgeons love a dose or two of immunotherapy. It doesn't suppress the blood counts of the patient prior to the uh, operation, uh, and they can see the uh, favorable uh, response in the tumor tissue. They actually say the the tumor tissue and the lymph nodes are sticky and uh, they feel different after immunotherapy. Um, and, it, and it's different from what they were used to with chemotherapy. So, you know, we're not quite there yet, uh, but I, I remain enthusiastic and I think uh, neoadjuvant uh, uh, immunotherapy seems feels different in the clinic uh, to the idea or the concept of adjuvant immunotherapy to me. No, no, I agree. And, you know, I think in the presidential symposium, we also saw, you know, some of the challenges in terms of awaiting some of the adjuvant trials to read out and the longer term read out for that um, with the Ithaca trial. Um, so, you know, I think in, in, in lieu or in light of all the rapid developments and combinations, again, one key challenge is really going to be establishing, um, you know, good surrogate endpoints, perhaps, um, in trying to, you know, rapidly screen through all the agents, that are, you know, the multiple combinations that are potentially coming through uh, into this setting. Um, and, you know, Dean, you know, any interest with neoadjuvant approaches in mesothelioma? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are these actually uh, taking place in the adjuvant space, uh, looking at immunotherapy. Um, it was a comment I was going to make, actually, around the rationale for whether you go adjuvant or neoadjuvant. And I think some of the preclinical data does speak to neoadjuvant having the advantage in that when you treat these tumours, you have a T-cell, memory T-cell complement which might lead to a protracted tumor suppressive um, activity beyond resection. Whereas, of course, if you resect all the tumor, you're removing a lot of that T-cell memory, uh, resident T-cell memory, and you may lack some of that additional efficacy in the immunotherapy post-surgery. So, I mean, it's really interesting to hear this is experienced clinically with the neoadjuvant, um, that the science may underpin a justification for what we're seeing in, in real life. And that could have a bearing on what we end up doing, actually, in the longer term. Um, in mesothelioma, uh, very early to say, you know, surgery is still quite controversial. And um, we've just completed the recruitment of the last patient into a randomized phase three of surgery called MARS-2. It's under Eric Lim, who I know had a, uh, an award at this uh, recent conference. Um, yeah, we need to understand what surgery is really contributing to the management survival of patients in mesothelioma to really get a sort of a view into the longer uh, distance actually as to where we'll go with things like neoadjuvant and and, and other treatments. Mm. And and of course, you know, I think the impact on you know the longer term outcomes conceivably may be quite different when we look across the different modalities of therapy, right? So as some of the assumptions that we made with targeted agents, you know, don't necessarily extrapolate into this uh, in the use of immunotherapy for reasons Dean has already, you know, nicely, um, you know, discussed um, just by virtue of the mechanism of action. 
Um, so I think, you know, I agree that the LCMC3 was also very reassuring in that, you know, if you look across the surgical experience, it didn't necessarily in this more in a larger cohort, it didn't really lead to that many treatment delay or delays in surgery and, and certainly proved to be feasible. Um, without, just before we touch on the, you know, the, one of the last topics of screening, um, there was this you know, the much anticipated adjuvant uh, osimetinib or the Adora study with the readout of adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, in a way, it wasn't, it didn't come too much as a surprise, um, you know, when read out that we saw substantial amount of the benefit was really driven by, you know, just by virtue of giving osimetinib. And in fact, adjuvant chemotherapy had a very minor uh, minimal impact um, it, it seemed when we look at the subset who received it. Um, I don't know, Melissa, what's your thought around around that data that, that read out this time? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Daniel. And I have found uh, uh, since the FDA approval of osimertinib uh, for patients in the adjuvant setting, as I try to explain it, um, I get my, I have, I have struggled to explain why you should get chemo and then osimertinib. Um, and so it's convenient uh, that the that the larger uh, uh, magnitude of benefit or the, lar the larger proportion, I should say, of benefit was in the targeted therapy. Um, in, the, in the Adora trial, of course, uh, patients received chemotherapy as was the investigator preference and the patient preference likely. Um, and, and so I, I think that's a, it's a little wrinkle, a little twist in the uh, initial Adora trial that was a plenary at ASCO. Um, and I think we are all still trying to, uh, you know, reconcile the trial with the practical reality that if you have this drug um, for a patient who has an EGFR mutation and the patient sitting across from you in the examining room, it's really hard to say, no, you should get chemotherapy. Um, so, I, you know, there clearly that's a controversial topic. And I, I mean, no disrespect uh, to all of our colleagues that worked so hard to establish the benefit of uh, platinum based chemotherapy for patients with adjuvant in the adjuvant setting. But um, I, I do wonder if this is also the tipping point um, uh, towards a, a more targeted approach uh, in the adjuvant setting. And, and I guess how, I mean, how much are you looking forward to maybe some of the longer term readouts of this trial, right? I mean, that's, that's clearly one of the things that is still favoring chemotherapy, you know, if you, whatever you say, there's still that at least long term survival benefit. Um, whereas I guess with the adjuvant TKI now, we're kind of don't have, not quite with that, with that data. It's true. I, I think um, it, it does remind me of the adjuvant Herceptin story in breast cancer, though, where they had this same, uh, and I say they, uh, 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 they had this same uh, discussion and uh, argument even uh, when the initial results came out. Um, and, you know, and look, look how we use that uh, Herceptin in the adjuvant setting now and, and other HER2 directed therapies. So I am cautiously optimistic that we'll see a survival benefit uh, in this setting as well, given the hazard ratio um, yeah. in, the, in, in the data presented. 
Okay. And I guess that we move to the lung cancer screening, which is an important topic, of course. Um, you know, I think what we saw this time was um, the data emerging from a screening study coming out of Taiwan, um, 12,000 patients, uh, approximately 12,000 patients that were treated was single arm. Um, and, you know, the patients were, there was a fairly high um, incidence of, um, you know, uh, lesions being picked up. Um, I think it was approximately 3% thereabouts. Um, what, what, you know, what are your thoughts around, I, I guess, in the uptake lung cancer screening in the U.S.? And, you know, how does that, you know, how does this data um, fit into some of your thoughts around screening? Well, I, I think um, it, it opened my mind uh, to the idea of what a high-risk uh, patient is that doesn't have a personal smoking history. And I, of course, the NLST data and the Nelson trial uh, defined a, a patient population with a significant smoking history. Um, so it, it made, it gave me pause um, in the, my one of my breast cancer colleagues texted uh, us in the United States, uh, the number of patients being uh, diagnosed and maybe uh, uh, treated uh, with breast cancer, those statistics are high and, and maybe it's the death rate have surpassed that of lung cancer uh, females. And so, you know, she happened to say, gee, this is a shame. This isn't something to be proud of yesterday. And I found myself thinking about uh, the, the, is it the Taylor study, um, the, uh, the screening study. Talent. Yeah. Talent. Uh, thank yeah. you. Uh, and, and uh, it does seem as though there are uh, factors in, uh, at play that are becoming more relevant, I guess, yeah. as we, as we go along. No, I agree. And, you know, I think it's really something that we've recognized for a while in terms of the preponderance in the, in, in Asian um, female. And it's certainly something that really, you know, I, I guess the question is what's next in terms of how do we can't make necessarily make those assumptions that these non-smoking uh, diagnosed tumors or cancers are necessarily going to behave or have the same biology as the screen detected cancers coming out of NLST or Nelson. Yes. Um, and I think that's, you know, that that's still a big question mark as to whether you would necessarily see the same mortality benefit. Um, you know, and, and I, and I guess that's really where we are now in, in terms of, you know, how we, we move forward with this. Um, I, you know, I do think that, whether you would like it or not, the, in, in, even as we speak, there are, you know, a lot of um, so-called health screening practices um, that are, you know, not necessarily um, in, that are, you know, doing CT scans. And, you know, we know that CT scans are becoming, you know, they are fairly ubiquitously done in some, some quarters. So, you know, I think it, there is, needs to be a framework at least to be able to increasingly capture some of this data um, and and you know, try to make try to make sense of how we're going to move forward with a screening a, a viable screening strategy. 
Um, Daniel, but, I'll just say the, the other uh, fascinating thing about uh, about that abstract was this idea of the cooking index yeah. um, that we, we were in my clinic. We were uh, Googling it. My nurse practitioner was like, what is that? It, it was a question that was addressed in the in the live discussion uh, afterwards. But um, but I think uh, you've un uh, that data has uncovered uh, a risk factor that maybe I hadn't appreciated before. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think this is also uh, the key with some of the efforts that ISLC, you know, was trying to do is, you know, ensure that whatever screening effort that's going on around the world, hopefully doesn't just happen in, in a silo and, you know, as much as possible to learn from the various experience and the, and the nature of the nodules that may be screen detected. Um, you know, I think, and I think that, that, that ultimately will allow us to, as I said, you know, develop more rational guidelines moving forward. So I think, you know, I think those are some of the key things, uh, you know, any other kind of thoughts from WCLC, you know, Dean and Melissa? The only other thing I might add is I thought that there was uh, some fantastic uh, discussions around that uh, around the idea of acquired resistance to immune therapy and the i think it, the title of the of the session was um bench to bedside um it, it, and uh, it, i i think that i was very encouraged uh by this meeting that we are moving beyond our current uh standard of care paradigms in in real uh, uh ways that will affect uh, the longevity of our patients. And so I, I just uh, over, I can't say enough uh, how, how much I enjoyed your meeting. Um, and I hope to get the opportunity to visit Singapore uh, in uh, real, uh, in real life uh, one day. Yeah, absolutely right. That was the part that was missing uh, the most last weekend. It's, you know, having everyone in Singapore. Um, and certainly we really hope that we'll get a chance to, um, you know, hang out in Singapore in, uh, in, in due course. So um, I think with that, let's uh, wrap up. And you know, thanks very much for, for the time. Uh, and uh, you know, everyone stay safe um, and have a good day. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this lung cancer session with VJ Oncology. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so that we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.